I don't know if it's just me, but something smells like it's getting pretty hot up here. I don't know if one of your maps is getting warm or smells kind of warm. Anyway, I got sensitive nose. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, hearing that song every time you guys play it, it kind of reminds me there's a little Jesse Taylor in us all at one point. And the, uh, when I was baptized, I was in my 40s, but the pastor said, Ron, you do know when you get baptized, the bigger the sin, the deeper the dunk. I think I hit my head on the bottom of this baptism, but praise the Lord, I made it, didn't I? I just remember Pastor telling me that, and he's, it's always stuck with me. When I hear that song, uh, Justice Taylor, it kind of reminds me of that day. Today we have the privilege. We have a privilege of having uh, Dr. Mike Proud give us a message. And I hope I get this right, right, Mr. Proud, is that he is the Colorado Baptist executive. Is that director? I got it. I had to write it down, but I got it. I was told that I want to make sure that I hit it right because I was kind of throwing a couple of things in there. But today we have a privilege of hearing uh, Dr. Proud, and he's going to give us a message. He's been here before a few times and been able to share a message with us, which has been very inspiring. It's wonderful to hear from those at the top of the ladder as well, that they, they come into our churches and spread the word and give us kind of a, a word of thought and inspiration. So, Doctor, if you'd like to come up today, we'd be glad to hear the message God's put on your heart, and please welcome Dr. Proud. Well, it's a great... Here we got. We're good. It's a great privilege to be with you here this morning and to be able to share the word of the Lord with you. Um, I, I want you to... Th I appreciate that introduction, but I want you to think about me not at the top of the ladder, but at the bottom. I'm the servant of all of the churches in Colorado, and so I, I hope that's how you see me. Um, you know, one of the things that we seek to do with the, at the convention is to partner with every church. Um, I've told a number of you this as, we've, as I've had the opportunity to travel the state uh, and meet in associational meetings. What I like to say is, um, you know, I want to be a face and not just a name on a website. I want, to be, I want to be with the, the Colorado Baptists. When you see this logo, don't think about the convention office. Think about you and the 379 sister churches that are in our convention. Because we recognize that we do more together than we can do alone. Amen? Amen. All right. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at a familiar passage this morning. Starting in verse 25, we're going to look at the at the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. But while you're doing that, I want, to give you, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of get a little deeper picture into who I am and where I've been. So I was saved in a small Southern Baptist church in Lafayette, Colorado. I grew up out there, East Boulder County. My wife is a native of Boulder, um, which we affectionately still refer to as 10 square miles surrounded by reality. You understand that. So, so we grew up out there, got saved, went to Colorado Christian University, uh, graduated there, and then went to Midwestern Seminary um, in Kansas City, Missouri, one of our six Southern Baptist seminaries. From there, the Lord brought us back to Colorado, where I pastored, pastored in Aurora uh, from 1998 to 2005, and then the Lord took us 
for 16 years onto the foreign mission field where he served in Southern California. Six years I was a pastor there, 10 years I was a director of missions, and then the Lord brought us back home. So we're grateful to be back in the state of Colorado. As I've traveled the state, one of the things that I've heard from pastors and church leaders is I've, I've wanted to know how can the, the Colorado Baptist General Convention partner more uh, effectively with you? How can we help you to accomplish what God's called you to do? And there have been a, a number of places where I've heard about, um, we heard about isolation and we heard about kind of a, a disconnectedness among our churches because in most of our associations, there was no leadership there. And so we were able to come in and see leadership uh, put into those places. Associations voted them in. The convention partnered with them so that we have, out of our 11 associations, we now have 10 full-time, what we're calling regional directors, that are there to respond to the churches. And why is that important? It's important because before that took place, there was only two associations that had any kind of leadership in it at all. And there were times where we heard that churches were in crisis or a pastor had left or there was conflict or something 12 months after the fact because there was no one there. And you know, when that kind of conflict sets in, it's harder to, it's harder to, to bring help and hope in those circumstances. Now our regional directors are responding uh, quickly. And so for me, it's, a, it's great. You know, I, I am a firm believer that every church matters regardless of its size regardless of its location regardless of of uh, its cultural background the language that it worships in every church is a lighthouse that the lord has brought in and and again the southern baptists have have found were founded on a principle that says we can do more working together than we can apart. Let me just give you, uh, this is my commercial for the Southern Baptists. Let me, let me just give you examples of that because I know that we, we've gotten a lot of heat in social media as of late. But I want to tell you this, there's still a lot of good that's taking place. Because you partner in the cooperative program, where, did you realize that you have an equal part in uh, investing in 3,600 missionary units that are sharing the gospel overseas. I don't, I don't know that that message gets out enough. You have a part. Regardless of what you give to the cooperative program, your partnership is about reaching people in places that you don't live, in, with language, in, whose heart language you don't speak, and who live in a culture that you're not familiar with. But you have a part in seeing the gospel spread. Because of your partnership, almost 800 churches in 2022 were planted in areas that were either underserved or there was no gospel witness in those communities. You're partnering with the Godinuses here who are planting right here in Pueblo. You get an opportunity to be a part of reaching people for the gospel. And then because of your partnership, and this was, I'm a beneficiary of this, Southern Baptist members who feel called to ministry get to go to one of our Southern Baptist seminaries at 50% off the the tuition price. You are helping prepare the next generation of those that are going to carry on the work. The work that you, you've been a part of, the work that you established here, the work that you have sweat and blood and worked for to see reach people in, with the gospel. So thank you for that. Thank you for your partnership. 
Oh, okay, let's go to the Word. I, I just have to do that. That's, that's kind of occupational hazard for me. But I want to share the good news of how we, how we are better working together. So let's look at uh, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And again, this is a familiar passage for you, but, but I want you to, to spend particular time listening to the words and as we walk through the text, understanding uh, maybe something new. Verse, chapter 10, verse 25 of Luke. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you, Lord, for the blessing that you've given us of just the, the privilege of being able to, to gather here together to, to sing your praises, Father, and to sit under the teaching of your word. And I pray, Father, this morning that the words that I speak are not my words, but that they, they simply illuminate the teaching of the word. The teaching that you have given us through your, your text. And Father, as we do that, may we be people who, who are impacted because of the word. May we be people who are impacted so that we are different people when we leave here than we were when we came because we've been in your presence. Lord, we love you and praise you and ask your blessings upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I shared with you about the kind of partnerships that we're involved in through our cooperative program. But, but partnerships are really what we need in order to reach Colorado and to reach the world with the gospel. So how do we go about reaching the lost in our community? Let's, let's bring it down to us. I think that's, that's sometimes the first question we lead with. How do we reach people in this community? But maybe a better question for us to start with is, so what does the world look like in the community that we're trying to reach? What are the values and the thought processes of those that we're trying to reach? You know, if you were a, if you were a foreign missionary living here in Pueblo and you were going to go, let's say you're going to go to Spain, it's important for you not only to learn the language, but to learn the customs, 
right? Because if you're going to try to reach people in a particular setting, you want to understand how do they think? You want to know what are their values? You want to know how do we connect with them at a heart level that the Holy Spirit may lead them to, uh, to himself. And there's not really a lot of difference about that than there is here in where we live. Because there is a culture around us that doesn't think like us. Anybody watch the news lately? There's a culture around us that doesn't process information the way we do. Listen, there's a culture around us, this is not a surprise, that doesn't vote like us. Right? But this is the people that the Lord has left us here to reach. This is the reason the lighthouse exists in this place, to reach a community all around us. It's important for us to know that, there, that things have changed since we were young. When we first came to faith, I came to faith in 1982. The world has changed since 1982. The world and its thought process has changed. You know, in 1982, most people, not everybody, but the majority of people had some connection and some understanding about church. Maybe it was that grandpa and grandma drugged them to church on Sunday morning or they went to VBS or they went to Sunday school on a regular basis. But that isn't the case today. We're seeking to reach a generation of people that don't have the basic understandings that we do. Now, that's going to be a shock for some of us. There are people who don't know the stories that are foundational for, for uh, our faith basis, right? They don't know about Noah and the ark. Does that sounds that sounds a little crazy? Is that possible that there are people that don't know who Noah was or about the ark? There are people who don't know about Daniel and the lion's den. And if we assume that that sense of knowledge with those that we're trying to communicate with, we may miss an opportunity to speak a language that they understand. When I was in California, I was the director of missions for the Orange County Southern Baptist Association. I had a meeting with a pastor in Huntington Beach, and he told me a story about a couple in their 20s. He said, this couple in their 20s, they started coming to church. They didn't have any kids yet, young marrieds. And he said, they started coming to church, and, and just casual conversations with them, I realized that they're not believers. So I set an appointment with them, invited them to come to the office. They came, and he said, I, I wanted, my plan was that I was going to do a high cursory survey of Scripture and then come to Jesus. And so he said he started with Adam and Eve. And he said to them, now you, you know Adam and Eve, right? And the wife looked at him as sincere as she could. And she said, well, you know, Pastor, we're new here and we haven't had a chance to meet them yet. <laughs> but this is the culture we're seeking to reach. My Sunday school teacher's son was 14 years old. And he had had a buddy come spend the night on Saturday night. And so our Sunday school teacher asked, asked his son's friend, would you like to come to church with us tomorrow? And he said, the little boy, the young man looked at him terrified and asked the question, what do you do there? This is the community that we're trying to reach. James Emery White in his book, The Rise of the Nuns. I, I love reading James Emery White because what he does is he tries to help us understand the, the culture of church and the culture around us and how those two can intersect. 
He, talked, he told a story about a, a mother who brought her 16-year-old son into his office to visit with him. And his first question to the pastor was, can you tell me what the deal is with the guy on the plus sign? Speaking of the crucifix, that was his contextualization of what that was. You know, later in that same book, and, and let, me, let me clarify this. When I say the rise of the nuns, I'm not talking about a, a bunch of women in black and white habits. That's not the rise that he's talking about. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, is a reference to our um, uh, census that we do every 10 years. And it asks under religious affiliation, Protestant, Catholic, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. And you know what the bottom box is? None. And it's the largest growing religious demographic in the United States. Every 10 years. It reveals it over and over again. James Emery White says this in his book. He says, in the 70s and 80s, when we were trying to reach lost people, we were reaching people. If the, if the continuum is from 0 to 10, 10 being a brand new believer, and 0 someone who's you know, lived in a box, never heard the name of Jesus, knows nothing about Christianity yet whatsoever. We were seeking to reach people, lost people, who were sevens and eights. Again, they had some connection and some context with the church. Some, at least some familiarity of what happens inside the building. He said, today, we're seeking to reach twos and threes. People who have little, if any, understanding. I, I, I'm just looking across the, the congregation and I can say, most of us in this room are probably familiar with the strategy that we used to use back in those days in the 70s and 80s to reach people where we would buy school buses, right? Churches, anybody been a part of bus ministry? You bought a school bus and you sent it into an underserved, underprivileged part of the community. Now, when I, when I share this example, people in their 20s and 30s gasp that we did this or that it even worked. We'd send it into those communities with the name of the church on the side of the bus. They had no idea who we were, but guess what? We pull up and they give us their kids. Now in today's culture, seeing that through today's lenses doesn't, I mean, that just seems like impossible. Hey, nobody's buying buses anymore and sending them into areas where we're unknown. I mean, think about that again. They gave us their kids and trusted that we would bring them back. If you were in children's ministry back in those days, you had some association with the bus. If you played a guitar, you led that ministry, right? That, that, was, that was the approach that we had. There's something about this understanding for us that the approaches that we use to reach lost people must change because processes that worked in the past will not necessarily work today, but the gospel message stays the same. Amen? That, we, that there are new and, and innovative ways that people are using to speak the language of lost people, to communicate at their heart level so that they will see the value. They will see and understand what this is all about. George Barna said that if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 years, most likely every relational connection that you have is with other believers. That unless we are intentional, there's no margin in most of us, for most of us to connect with lost people on a relational basis. To build friends with our neighbors, our co-workers, 
and that. Years ago, when I was pastoring, and I was a pastor for 18 years, we used to try, I used to try to communicate with our congregation that everybody that has been born again has a place in ministry. And so we used to use the language that every member is a minister. The unfortunate thing that I, as I look back on that is that the way people interpreted that was, if I can serve within the four walls of the church, then I have a place to serve, right? So we think about ministry as what takes place inside the church. If I can teach Sunday school, if I can be a deacon, if I can be on the praise team, if I can do something with inside the walls of the church, great, I've got a place to plug in. But unfortunately, that left many people on the outside wondering, where is my place? What's my role? How do I connect? I think a, a more valuable term that we could use or imagery that we could use is every member is a missionary. Because missionaries are sent. Missionaries are supposed to go. Missionaries have a place. It's easy for us to think about, and I used the example of missionaries earlier, but it's, easy, it's easier for us to think about missionaries as people who are, grow up in a particular context and they leave that context to reach other people in their context. Now, while we can think about that with missionaries going overseas, I want us to think about it about the call God has on our lives as his people. Because there is a stark difference between the Christian context and the world's context. And so for us to step outside of our context and to reach a lost world around us means that we don't just invite everybody to come to the church. Our only approach can't be about inviting them to a building. Because this is not their context. They don't understand what this is. They're not comfortable with this. But it's about us going. And how many, how many uh, verses in Scripture have we seen that the sending nature of God is for us to go and impact those who are around us with the Scripture, with the Gospel? In fact, when you think about it, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord asks the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? In the Great Commission... In, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the, the call to go is, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say, wait for them to come to us. It says, go. Jesus said that to his disciples that the fields are white unto harvest, but what was the deficit? The laborers are few, right? You don't harvest apples and peaches by waiting for them to come into your house. You go out in the field. You go out in that context. And so for us, I think a good understanding for us is that, that we must go outside. We must go to lost people. We must build relationships where they are in order to build a trust, in order to build and win an opportunity for them to see our lives, not just hear what we say, but to see our lives that we are distinct and different. Alan Hirsch, in his book, Unforgotten Ways, says, If our only approach as Christians is to invite a lost world to come to us, then what essentially we're asking lost people to do are be the missionaries. We're asking them to leave what's comfortable for them and come to us. Now, don't hear me say that inviting people to the building and doing events at the building is wrong. I'm not saying that. I just said, if that's our only approach... We've been sent. We've been sent to go. 
I think that's, that's an important thing for us to remember. And I think that's why today's parable, this passage of Scripture that we're looking at, is important because it's important. It speaks to us. It communicates to us about what does it mean to love your neighbor? And Jesus was asked that question as a, as a way to trap him. But the teaching that came out of that, I think, is applicable for all of us. We must make impacts into those people that are not like us. Don't think like us. Don't look like us. Don't vote like us. Because those are the ones that Jesus went to. Right? How many, how many of you fishermen in here? I, I love to fish. I love to fish. There's, a, there's an analogy, right? We don't clean fish until we catch them. Don't expect people to clean up their lives before... They have a relationship with Jesus is the one who does that. Amen. Amen? We just have the opportunity to be the ones that, that are, are casting the seed or casting the, the line. So I want us to look at this passage of Scripture and see how in practical and tangible ways we can make inroads as missionaries. We can make inroads into the lostness around us. So we're going to look at the, at the parable of the Good Samaritan. I built a porch here. I'm not going to keep you long, um, but, I, but I want us to walk through this passage. Here's, here's one thing I want you to do for me this morning. This is such a familiar passage of Scripture that many times we run to the end of the story and, and we, because we're so familiar with it, we miss the little pieces along the way. I want us to, to look and illuminate some of the small pieces that, that really impact and drive home the end of the story. So don't jump ahead with me this morning. Let's, let's walk through the passage. So verse 25, we're, we're told this is the, the setup, this is the background to the parable proper. In verse 25, we're told that a lawyer comes to put Jesus to the test. All right, so all of a sudden, right there, we know everything that comes from the lawyer is not a sincere desire for him to gain information or understanding or even life-changing uh, uh, experience with Jesus. What he's looking to do is trap Jesus. Okay, so that's everything that, that he's communicating comes out of that. He stood up to put him to the test. And here's what he says. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus is the master teacher. Any, anyone in here in education, right? Or you taught Sunday school or something, you understand that the best teachers are the ones that don't give direct answers, but they cause the student to think about the question themselves and come to conclusion. That's where, that's where teaching really drives home and brings about change. And so rather than responding to the man's question directly, Jesus asks two questions in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? And then he says, how does it read to you? And let me, let me share with you what I think Jesus is asking. He's probing the lawyer in two areas. One, he wants to know, what is your interpretation of the law? When he says, how, do, how does that read? In other words, he's asking, do you think correctly about the law? The second piece that he's asking when he asks, how does it read to you? He's really asking the application question. What are you doing about that? How is that affecting your life? In other words, he's asking the right living question. So he's asked a question about right thinking, and he's asked about right living. Just a side note here. Right thinking doesn't automatically guarantee that right living will follow. That's clear in our, in our passage here this morning. 
But if you think wrongly about a subject, it guarantees that whatever comes after that is going to be faulty as well. So look at what, what happens. The lawyer says in verse 27, and he, and he quotes the Shema, which is the, uh, it's the Baptist faith and message for Jews of Jesus' day. And this is what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he adds in Leviticus 19 where he says, and your neighbor as yourself. Now I want you to look how Jesus responds in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. In other words, your thinking on this matter is, is sound. It is correct. But then Jesus concludes with, do this and you will live. There's the application point. Okay, You think right about this, now go and do it. Now the lawyer's trapped. The lawyer came to trap Jesus, and now the lawyer's trapped because he's, he, he's, everything about his faith is head knowledge, and there's no activity that's gone with that. So in verse 29, he tries to get himself off the hook, and he asks the question, and who is my neighbor? Let, let me put that in a different context with what we've talked about, about reaching a lost world around us. It is this, who is the person outside of my context? In other words, the person that doesn't look like me, the person doesn't think like me, the person doesn't vote like me. Who is the person outside of my context that I should love and care for as I would myself? And Jesus' answer to that question, and who is my neighbor, is the parable proper that starts for us in verse 30. Everything that follows from this point forward is Jesus' response to that question. And let's look and we'll see what he says. Verse 30 says, and a, man, and a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. Just know that as Jesus is responding to this lawyer, there is a crowd of people that are listening to his response. They're not only listening to the, the question, they're listening to the answers. And so everybody in that hearing space would have understood the dangers between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's a 15-mile stretch of road that weaves in and out of crags and rocks, and it, it's got an elevation difference of 3,300 feet. Most people who were listening to him at this day understood that robbers often find places to hide to prey on unsuspecting travelers that come along. Everybody understood that danger. Here's what's unique about this. Jesus' description of the man who fell into the robber's hands. There are many times when Jesus teaches parables that he gives very little description of what's going on. In Matthew chapter 13, which is an entire chapter on kingdom parables, Jesus will talk about there's a treasure a man found in a field. doesn't talk about the details of the field or details of the treasure, just that he found it. The very next parable is about a man who finds a pearl of great price. Again, no great detail about the pearl other than it's extremely valuable and the man buys it. But here Jesus goes to great lengths to describe and give great detail about this man who fell into the robber's hands. It says, they stripped him, they beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. So let's unpack that a little bit. So we got a visual in our mind of this man. Most likely he's naked, they stripped him, he's bleeding, they beat him, and he's unconscious, he's not moving. They left him half dead. The point of Jesus' 
description, his detail in this, is so that everybody listening can understand there is no mistaking this is a person who has a need. Okay? Imagine that you were preparing for church this morning and you got in your car and you backed out of your driveway and there was someone on the sidewalk, a man who was naked and bleeding and not moving. Would that have gotten your attention? Would you have thought in your mind, oh, he'll be okay? No. And that's the point Jesus is driving home here. Nobody would have ever walked by this guy and said, I think he's good. All right. So let's go on with the story. Verse 31, we are told that by chance a priest was going down on that road. All right. So, so let's understand that. Sometimes we use the, the word down liberally, right? I, sometimes I'll tell Sally, hey, I'm going to go down to the office or I'm going to go down to the store. Or I'm going to go down here or whatever. It's just a, my way of saying I'm going somewhere. But here in scripture, and we've already talked about that the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is 3,300 foot difference in elevation over 15 miles. When this tells us the priest was going down that road, it identifies that he was leaving Jerusalem and he was headed to Jericho. That was the direction that he was going. He was literally going down. Why is that significant? Well, most likely the priest was serving at the temple and he was making his way home to Jericho. Okay, that'll, that'll play in here in a little bit. Verse 32 tells us the second traveler comes along and this man is a Levite. And we're not told his direction specifically but it says, likewise, the Levite, which gives us the implication that he too is heading in the same direction. So why is this important? You know, priests had a primary role at the temple, and Levites served a secondary role at the temple. But they served at the temple with the understanding, this was their belief, that the Spirit of God dwelt in this place. The temple was established so that this was, this was the place you interacted with the Lord. There wasn't a concept that we have today with the indwelling Holy Spirit that everywhere I go, God is. It was, I, I don't have to come to a building to encounter God. I don't have to come to a building to commune with God. I don't have to come to a building to confess my sins to God. But in Jesus' day, before the New Testament, the, before the New Covenant, this was the thought process. We go to the temple and we do those. We go to the temple and sacrifice for forgiveness or for gratitude or, or for relating to the Lord. These men had been in the presence of holy God. And as they encountered the lost man, it, or the, the man who fell into the robber's hands, it tells us that even though they had been in the presence of God, serving God at his house, it didn't change their actions at all. I want you to imagine this. Pastor Greg is here and he's preaching an inspiring message on helping those that are hurting. And, and you're amening him. Amen, brother, that's what we need to do. And you're inspired and you're fired up. And you leave this place and you go out to your car and out in the parking lot next to the driver's side door is a man that's naked and bleeding and not moving, and you open the door and step over the body, and you get in your car and you back out because we're going to lunch and we got to beat the Methodist. Right? Now, no one, here, no one here would ever 
ever, ever do that. But this is what these two men did. They were, they were in the presence of God, and the indictment on both of them was, it did not change their actions. And so we come to the third traveler. Anybody that's ever heard a joke, three guys walk into the store, you know it's the third one, right? That's where the punchline is. That's where the power of the story is with the third one. And so it's the same here. We, we many of you understand that, that Jews and Samaritans did not like one another. And it wasn't, it wasn't one-sided, it was mutual. There was animosity between both. And here comes a a Samaritan on a journey. A Samaritan, by the way, whose context was different than the Jews. A Samaritan, by the way, who was most likely traveling through an area that was highly Jewish. And so most likely this man who fell into the robber's hands was Jewish himself. And yet something different happened with this man. In fact, what we're told here. Um, in verse 33, is that as the Samaritan came and saw this man, it says he felt compassion. Now, the Greek word that's translated into felt compassion is really a complex word. What it literally means is that he identified with this man's situation to such a degree that action had to be taken for his benefit. We might even say he was compelled. That might even be a better, another word. He felt compassion, but he was compelled by compassion to interact. In other words, he couldn't unsee what he has seen. The need of this man so penetrated his heart that he could not walk away. He, he could not ignore the needs of this man. And it was so he didn't just help this man. He didn't just bind up his wounds put him on his donkey, take him to, to an inn, or uh, even if we were going to do this in contemporary terms, put him in our car, take him to the emergency room, drop him off, say we've done our part, and go away. This man said, here's two days' wages to take care of him, and when I come back, I'm going to check and see if you've spent any more money on him, and I'll cover that too. The Samaritan stepped outside of his context to help someone not in his context that had a need. And he showed in practical and tangible ways what it means to put right thinking into action. Jesus then turns, as the parables concluded, he turns to the, to the lawyer and he asks him this question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. What's the lawyer going to say? Well, I think it was the priest. No. I think it was the Levite. No. He has to say, because there's no other choice, it was the Samaritan. In fact, verse 37, he says, um, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus goes back to the application point that he he offered in verse 28, and he reiterates it here, where in verse 28 he says, go and do this and you will live. Here in verse 37 he says, go and do the same. I think that's a word for us in a contemporary church today, especially given the, the stark 
gap that there is between Christian values and the world's values of today. And sometimes we're afraid, sometimes we're uncomfortable in building relationships with people who don't think like us and don't, don't live like us, who have relationships that are different than we are, who, who, who identify in life differently than we do. But these are the people for whom Jesus died as well. Amen? I, I may not have been a drunk, but my sins would have doomed me just the same had I not been forgiven by the Savior. And it took just the same blood that Jesus shed on the cross for me as it does for the, the drug addict or it does for someone who's a, a CEO of a, of a business that's never done, um, you know, has never wronged anybody in his own mind. He's a good person. The same. Because it's not about being a good person, is it? It's about surrendering to the Savior. And we as God's people have been the ones that have been called to go. I don't know that there's been a time in our lifetimes where the need to show the world in tangible and practical ways that Jesus loves them, that this is not just rhetoric that the Christians say, but it's demonstrated by what we do. And it doesn't take, it doesn't take, um, it doesn't take elaborate plans either. It can be, my neighbor is having a birthday and here's a plate of cookies. And it don't even have to be homemade cookies. If I gave my neighbor cookies that I made, I might be accused of abuse. <laughs> but I can buy Oreos and I can bring them over. I can do that. You know, there are things that guys do. Guys, we're, we're funny people, right? Starbucks, yes, ladies, yes, yes. <laughs> Starbucks was created for women because they're little tables with chairs that you, you look across at one another and guys communicate in grunts and sentence fragments and we do it side by side better than we do it face to face. But you know, a bunch of guys could get together from the church and could fix a fence of a lost neighbor and we could demonstrate Jesus cares about you and loves you. There are just all kinds of ways that we can do this and that we can make an impact. And I think about... These are people with hopes and dreams and hurts and hopes, just, just like I have. They have feelings just like I have, regardless of where they're on, on, on any side of whatever fence. And if we'll be brave enough to step out of our context and to love them and demonstrate this kind of love, we'll make an impact in the world around us. It's not about what we know. It's about what we're willing to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we enter into a time of invitation. This morning, maybe you're here and um, you're not a believer. And, and, and this is somewhat foreign to you, but there's a, 